I think, you know, yes, life, life is traumatic. I'm going to say that life is difficult. Life is traumatic. I think they go hand in hand and we all take events differently, right? Like somebody yelling at you in the grocery store may be traumatic because of your past, right? And your old, uh, your pathways and, and your, uh, your challenges, but somebody might yell at me and I don't take it on energetically at all. And it's not a trauma for me. So, you know, I think, I think like, yes, trauma is such a, like a hot word right now. And, and it's, it's complicated and nuanced and there's no black and white answers. And we all have a different way of that showing up in our bodies. Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com. But for now, here is today's episode. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. My name is Evan Transu, aka Detective Ev, and I will be your host for today's show. And if you listen to our last episode, which was the 200th episode special, I had said that we were going to immediately kind of be putting out continuations of that because in the 200th episode, what we did was take the best advice from every guest we've ever had so far and put it into one giant compilation. I figured it might be better and more digestible for people if I do it kind of every other. It's a lot of work for our team too to kind of get those done. So I'm actually bringing you another interview today, but we will be continuing that compilation and going through all of the people that we have talked to so far. This one is good though, and it's very timely around this holiday season. The guest that I have today, her name is Danielle Dame, and she is awesome. The 50 minutes flew by on this one. We actually needed a few extra minutes because I looked down and realized the time had already passed. She is going to be talking with us today about sugar addiction and the trauma surrounding this. What was particularly impressive about this interview is if you've been in the space for longer than a week, you really can't not hear something about sugar, trauma, whatever. I mean, these are hot topics and they've been hot topics for a very long time, especially sugar. So the idea that this woman was able to still come on our show and really bring me one of the more engaging podcasts in a long time, let alone on two subjects that are grossly overdone, it is very impressive. Her expertise shows throughout this because especially at the end, you'll see her, I don't want to use the word predict, that's wrong, but she was able to make an assumption about something that seems totally disconnected, and she was 100% correct. So this is a real professional. You guys are going to like this, and she knows what the heck she's talking about. So Danielle Dame is a sugar freedom coach and speaker who is passionate about helping women reshape their relationship with sugar so they can reclaim control over their health and energy once and for all. Having struggled with sugar addiction herself, she knows exactly how difficult and overwhelming the journey can be. Using her extensive knowledge in nutrition, personal experience, and coaching, Danny helps her clients discover a new way of living in which sugar cravings and guilt no longer controls their health and life. She is also the host of the top-rated podcast, Beyond Sugar Freedom, where she dives deep into conversations about the root causes of sugar dependency and total body health and wellness. 
this is one of those ones. There's nothing to hype up. There's no more for me to say. I want to get right into the meat and potatoes of this. No pun intended because we're talking about sugar and that really, okay, that was just terrible overall. I'm not going to edit it. If I do edit it, I won't learn anything. I need to stop making those jokes. Without further ado, let's get to today's episode. All right. Hey there, Danny. Thanks so much for coming on with us today. Hey, it's so great to, to be here. Thanks for bringing me on. Absolutely. We are pretty far apart. We got Western Canada over there, Eastern United States. Um, really cool. One awesome thing about the world of podcasting and just the internet in general is the fact that we can do this. Might never see each other in person, but can do a 50-minute <laughs> podcast together. So that's always cool. I think this is, I was saying this before we started, very timely podcast. We're recording this stuff about sugar during the holiday season, but there is something even worse than the holiday season, I think at least when it comes to the sugar issues. And when we're in the holiday season, it's not like we necessarily, depending on how severe the person is with their health stuff and what they're trying to accomplish, most of the time, we're not really going to necessarily recommend complete abstinence during the holidays anyway. But what happens is when we allow certain triggers back in, like for me, I've definitely been addicted to sugar in my life. And I've noticed it's almost better for me to just abstain completely because if I allow a little bit in, it's one of those things. I always heard this saying that anything permitted increases, right? So that's both good and bad. If I permit myself to read two pages a day, it's probably going to turn into 10. And if I permit myself to just have a little bit of sugar around the holidays, then the subsequent new year could be an issue. And now there's nothing to look forward to. I'm kind of just sitting there. So before we get into the how-tos and stuff like that, I want to know a little bit about you and how you got into this because like most most people that come on our show, very few people get into this specific line of work uh, because that was their childhood dream. Most likely some things occurred that led you to doing what you're doing now. Absolutely. Yeah. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a vet. So I'm not doing there that. You go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing, I wanted to help animals, but instead I'm helping humans. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for that. And I'm really excited to dive into this topic. And I think, yeah, the, the timing of whenever, whenever this comes out is a good time. It's always, it's always an issue. It's always a conversation that needs to be had around our relationship to food and our addictive patterns and sugar and all the things. So yeah, you're, you're right. You know, my journey to sugar, my sort of sugar wake up kind of, uh, happened six years ago. So it wasn't in childhood. It wasn't, you know, but when I look back, that's really where my, my story started. And I think for all of us, that's where it starts. Definitely, you know, in childhood, when we start being bombarded with all these sweet things, right. And we start just getting hooked on the sugar, even the sweet taste of our mother's breast milk, you know, really starting to bring us comfort and start having those emotional connections to food. And from there, it just, you know, compounds, you know, in the world that we live in, in every angle and every, every direction we look, um, we're being hit with it. So, that was my upbringing was very typical. I was in a nuclear family. We loved sugar, you know, more so on my mom's side of the family, like very addicted to sugar. Um, I'm of Danish descent. Um, and if you think of Denmark, you know, often we think of pastries and Danishes sure. and, and they love sugar. So that's a fact. That's true. I've been there many times. It's definitely uh, something that is a big part of the culture. And wherever you're from, it is a big part of the culture. So growing up in that way, you know, I, looking back now, you know, I was always so addicted to sugar. I was a really picky eater. Um, I often joke that I only ate white things. So white bread, white pasta, like I didn't want vegetables. I didn't want meat. Like I just wanted the cheese and the pasta and the bread and the, the, hot dog bun with ketchup on it. And, mm -hmm. and of course, all of the other more obvious sugar, the ice cream, the, the candy, the treats, it was a really big part of my upbringing. And that was a time when we just didn't know what we were doing. My mom didn't know, right? We, we didn't know that it was a problem. We thought it was just how we eat and it's delicious and it's good. Therefore, it must be good for us. So 
needless to say, I was raised eating a lot of sugar and I've always been very active. I've always been, you know, I was a soccer player my whole life and I've always loved hiking and being outdoors and being active. So luckily that combination helped me, you know, relatively deal, I would hope with a lot of that sugar at a young age. Things started really kind of shifting for me. I went off to university, um, and then after university, eating the typical university diet of pizza and pasta and binging on the weekends and drinking. Um, you know, I went off and uh, worked in actually one of the largest banks here in Canada and started, you know, this new phase of my life. This, like, you know, I'm going to be successful and wear high heels and be all important and do big things and help people with their money, which used to be my passion. Um, and it was in that that two-year span that I actually worked at this place that I can look back now and understand that that was really my rock bottom of emotional eating. And that was a really rock bottom for my addiction to sugar and processed food and using every single escape mechanism that I could think of outside of, you know, um, illegal drugs to numb my pain, to numb my depression, my anxiety, my, my just total disconnection from myself and from life. So I was, I was drinking, I was eating sugar, I was binging on Netflix. I was just trying to escape life for, for almost that full two years because I was so miserable for many reasons, which is a neither here nor there. And luckily both my husband and I at the time, we were both actually, you know, I say luckily because I, I'm very grateful that in the span of those two years, we both actually got miserable enough that we really hit the breaking point and really started tuning in and understanding that there's more to life. So we actually both quit our jobs. And this was the first of many leaps of faith. We quit our jobs and we actually went and lived in South America for a year. We went and traveled for a year. I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to, I love travel. We both love travel. And it was on that journey that things started clicking for me around seeing how other cultures actually related to food and how they actually cooked their own food. Can you even imagine? <laughs> right? Like they went yeah. to the market. They knew where their vegetables came from. They cooked. You know, eating out was a special occasion, not like this daily occurrence, uh, which it was for me at the time. So just starting to really notice things as well as eating horrible myself while we were traveling on 30 hour bus rides, just eating junk, um, you know, starting to notice my body really starting to slow down and, you know, starting to gain weight, starting to notice the emotional roller coaster that I was on, how gross I was feeling in my body, um, how sore I was starting to feel, just all these things. And at the end of that trip was really where things like the catalyst really started. Uh, we were, for the first time in my life, living completely off the land. We were at a yoga retreat in the middle of the Colombian jungle of all places. I do not recommend doing your sugar detox there, but I just wasn't <laughs> aware. I didn't know what was going on. And we were living completely off of Whole Foods. And it was during that two-week period of time that I obviously went through a sugar detox. I went through my, what I call my accidental sugar detox. We both did. Um, and I remember just feeling miserable. I remember waking up in the night at weird times, being hungry, uh, having headaches, feeling tired, even though I was literally laying in a hammock all day doing yoga and like mm -hmm. enjoying this beautiful, <laughs> beautiful nature, right? right. Um, so my body was obviously going through it, going through some things. I had digestive problems. I had all the, all the, all the symptoms of withdrawal and, and just what my body was trying to clear out this lifetime of processed food. So for me, that was a huge catalyst in, in reflecting on my relationship with processed food and my relationship with myself. Um, during that trip, I also started tapping into my spirituality and my deep desire for 
being connected to something bigger and knowing that I am connected to something bigger. I started meditating, obviously learned yoga. Um, I learned about Ayurveda. I learned about a few different things on that trip. And coming home, literally two weeks after that, you know, that jungle experience, I really, really in my body started noticing how my taste buds had changed. Mm -hmm. So I remember having this huge list of things that I wanted to come home to Canada to have, like a caramel frappuccino from Starbucks or, you know, a a toasted bagel with cream cheese from Tim Hortons. So -hmm. Canadian of me, right? Um, I had this huge list of things that I wanted to have. And I remember coming home uh, and landing in the airport in Vancouver and uh, having that Starbucks drink. And I remember not being able to drink it. I remember my mouth had changed and it was actually disgusting to me. And that was just the start of really percolating this understanding for me of of these cravings and this control that sugar and processed food had had over my decisions and my life and my health and my mental capacity and my energy and just the control that it had over me. And I started just getting curious and getting, um, you know, getting clean and wanting to eat clean. So my husband and I both went, you know, into clean eating and really wanted to get back to learning to nourish our bodies with whole real foods and understanding that if we didn't do that, um, you know, my, my genetic, um, predispositions are, are not the best. (laughs) They're not the best. I've got some, some things in my family line that are not diseases that I want. And that was a really big motivator for me in, in looking, especially at my maternal line and the genetics that I carry there and um, just seeing the list of diseases and difficulties that they struggle with and not wanting that for myself. So there was a lot of reasons why I really wanted to wake up and I really wanted to start nourishing my body and looking after myself. And through doing that myself, obviously enter the passion to do that for other people. Sure. And it's changed my life, right? It's it's absolutely changed the way my body looks and feels and my relationship with myself and my ability to slow down and not live in a stress state all the time and to not need something outside of myself to cope or to get through and to numb out and escape difficult emotions and just all the beautiful gifts that I've given myself of this inner work that I've, as I've been healing over the last six years myself. Awesome. Wow. All right. There's a lot to unpack here. I want to start with actually something relatively simple. And because I'm not clear on this, when you were experiencing, I mean, what clearly is withdrawal from the sugar stuff as you're doing that kind of retreat more or less, were you instantly aware that this was related to the food or did you not understand why you felt bad at the moment? Not at all. I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. No, this was like, this is all hindsight for (laughs) me because I didn't know that it was a problem until I got it out of my system. But that's why I call it an accident because I didn't really, I was totally not aware of what was going on. Okay. I thought I was sick. I thought there was something wrong with me. Um, you know, it didn't help that at, at the tail end of that, we both actually got a parasite from drinking the water. So then we were just catapulted into just absolute, you know, terror of how we felt and how we were healing. And when we came home to Canada, um, it was just that catalyst to, to get us, you know, let's clean up our diet. We've gained weight, you know, we've done all these things. So we wanted to just get clean, both of us. And that was really where we, I started clicking. Oh, that's what happened. I started learning about sugar. I, I, I took my, um, education as a holistic nutrition coach and I started learning about that. And for, for myself, um, started putting those dots together. Like, oh, that's what was going on there. I was getting off the processed crap. (laughs) Gotcha. I I was curious about that because I mean, the way that you described it, it did sound like this incremental realization, but I couldn't tell if those in, in those initial stages, there was any awareness of this because I imagine 
how many people out there might unintentionally, I mean, not the exact situation, but they might unintentionally be going through similar things to this, but they would never register it as withdrawal symptoms because I'm in the mental health space as well. And when we hear about drug withdrawal symptoms, if you don't know any better, if you've never heard the phrase drug withdrawal, the symptoms that occur as a result of you not using your drug of choice anymore are I mean, they'd be very disconnected for some people. If you had no education around that, you'd be very confused as to what is happening to you. And now I'm thinking about all the people out there, even maybe myself in the past, when I'm wondering how fast this sets in because I'm like, well, what if I just went a day unintentionally without sugar and I was addicted to it before? Am I having a terrible day not really realizing that I'm actually withdrawing from sugar? Do you recall how fast did it happen? Was it one day of this, couple days, three days? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And um, I'll come back to that in a second, because I just want to comment on like, um, I I totally get what you're saying. And I have, I feel like it's very rare. I've never met somebody who would go into an accidental sugar detox withdrawals without knowing it. For most people, like sugar is there until we actually get aware and conscious and make the choice to go off of it. Um, it's True. sneaky. It's it's in everything, right? And and hopefully, actually, that's not the case for a lot of your listeners who are hopefully now on whole real foods and really nourishing their body, right? Um, but most people I find, you know, ex- and even, I mean, you would obviously be able to speak to this more, more but even with drugs, right? There's almost this like, I know I'm going to go off coffee. I know I'm going to go off, you know, this other drug of choice um, and kind of being intentional with that, does definitely call for needing to prepare yourself and have hopefully the right support and somebody to guide you through what what to expect. Um, sure. and even my clients in my programs who come in and we're like, okay, we we spend a couple of weeks getting ready before actually withdrawing and and detoxing from sugar. Even then, I prepare them, and even then, there's always surprises that come up. Like, why is my, I feel like I have the flu, or my bones are aching, or I feel more moody than normal, and you know, it's it's all part part of the journey, right? So. Um, to come back to your question, you know, looking back, you know, it was it was definitely within a few days for me personally. Um, you know, I would say maybe two or three days, I started started noticing like lower energy and weird symptoms and those things starting to come on for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a lot of my clients, it is definitely within like within the first few days or that week. Okay. Um, some people, so it's very different, right? For some people, it could be you know day one, a one day without sugar is they'll notice they'll notice it big time, right? And some people may not notice a day without sugar. And I think it really depends on obviously all of our bio-individuality and and as well as how much sugar you're actually eating in a day. You know, if you're eating 500 grams of sugar every single day and then you go off it, you're probably going to notice some big symptoms, right? You're probably going to be hungry all day. You're going to be exhausted. Your body's going to be confused. Um, but if you're not eating that much, right, and maybe there's, there's less sugar in your life, then going off it a day isn't going to be yeah. maybe as big, right? Like if you're having... 12 cups of coffee a day and you go off it, you're going to notice it a lot quicker than if you are a one a day kind of person sort of, sort of thing. So depends. Got it. I, I was curious because I mean, I guess, yeah, if it takes a couple of days, I'm absolutely in agreement then that no one would ever really do this without being intentional about it. I was kind of thinking like if someone, especially in our hustle bustle lifestyle, there's if someone's not registering the idea that they're maybe addicted to sugar, right? This is just such a part of what they do that they're not even understanding that this is a real addiction that could cause real withdrawal symptoms. Okay, well, they're just busy that morning. The kids were screwing around and they had to get to work and now they haven't eaten in 12, 13 hours. Well, if you were addicted to a uh, 
you know, maybe a strong drug, you would know, okay, I'm addicted to this drug. I didn't have it. This is why I feel like crap. Where I'm like, how many people walk around if it can happen to some people, maybe those real excess level sugar people, like 500 grams in a day, how many people do have these temporary withdrawal things and think like, yeah, it's just a bad mood or I'm tired, but really they're, they're going through actual withdrawal. I'm kind of fascinated by, um, that side of this, because the other good side about withdrawal is it's kind of like being, I mean, it really is like being sick. If you can help someone understand that when they're going through that, it is a temporary thing. Your brain's tricking you, you get through that. And then there's a promised land on the other side. You're going to feel phenomenal. Um, it, it, that's worth it. And I'm lucky. I was never really, I was absolutely someone who met the diagnosis of substance abuse, but addiction was tough for me. I never, it sounds so weird, but even with the harder drugs that I I used when I was um, in high school, I would cycle them. Like it was crazy. Like I was aware of the danger of getting physically addicted to something that I couldn't necessarily afford, but marijuana was always my thing. You know, I would smoke that all day. And of course, I'm not going to insult anyone by acting like I went through some severe withdrawal by stopping weed versus someone that stops heroin, But but it was strange. And I found that as I started that journey of starting, stopping, I needed to train my brain to realize, all right, F, yes, the next three days, the sleep's going to suck. You're not yeah. going to feel 100% yeah. good, but this too shall pass. And then on the other side of that, you actually feel amazing. You start to get level energy again. You have gr- yeah. better sleep than you did before. So it's almost like you're trading some temporary pain for this this wonderful promise on the other side, which you experienced, um, you and your husband experienced. How did you make the transition then eventually? I understand that it was pretty profound for you, but still, I mean, that's a hell of a career switch because you went from this banking originally, no job, right? Kind of traveling yeah. and stuff to then doing this. When did you decide that I want to go do this? I want to help other people with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great question. You know, and for me, it's really, it's just unfolded naturally. You know, when I got back from that, that trip, um, we both actually had no idea what we wanted to do with our lives, you know, and I was doing a lot of soul searching and I was learning to meditate and I was learning how to actually tune in and connect with my inner wisdom and my truth and, and what lit me up. And in that process, I was really getting clear that I was passionate about nutrition and I wanted to learn more about nutrition. So within a couple months of getting home from that trip, I'd signed up for, you know, an, a year long nutrition coaching program. And I was studying and learning nutrition um, and, and kind of having that inclination that, Hey, I want to help people, you know, start eating better and start building healthy habits and start supporting them. Um, you know, I have this deep desire in me to help right where, where people are struggling and people are struggling with their health. So that, that was a big, you know, big calling. So it was actually, you know, I started, I started working with clients at the beginning, you know, first two years, helping more generally, you know, helping, helping women make meal plans or helping them learn how to cook again and um, nourish their bodies, learn what, what felt right in their bodies, build healthy habits. You know, I was kind of in that broad spectrum for the first few years and about two years into that work and, and my journey, I finally got to a place with my relationship with sugar where I felt back in control. So at the time of helping others, I was still dealing with my own stuff, right? I was still Sure. also growing and learning and trying to figure out what's going on with this these cravings and this addiction and this dependency that I have emotionally and physically and psychologically on this substance. So once I finally got to that place, um, I actually had a good friend of mine. We were out for a coffee somewhere and she we were talking about like niching down, right? In business. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I need how do I and she just looked at me and said, Well, what about sugar? And it dawned on me. I was like, oh yeah, like that's, that's my story. Like that's my, you know, my big piece and, and something that I was really passionate about and talking about and something that I had over my own struggles. Um, and I'll make this clear when I 
uh, became aware that I was, you know, had a, had a dependent problem with sugar. Mm-hmm. It took me a good two, two and a half years to actually feel free from that <laughs> and to actually get back in the driver's seat. Um, and I don't abstain from sugar. There's, there's reasons why. Um, but I, I, I believe that we can get to a place of moderation and, and do the inner healing that we need to do to get there. Um, but, it took me two and a half years to do that for many reasons. I had no support, nobody around me. Like I was the black sheep in the family. I didn't have any community. I didn't even know that I could go on Google and research like support with sugar. Like I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know other people were doing this. No one in my family, um, you know, had navigated this. So I was kind of making a blueprint for myself starting from scratch. So there was a lot of ups and downs and that's really important uh, for anyone who's listening to this. This is not a straight line. This is not a straight line to success, whether you're growing a business or getting off sugar or um, anything, right? It's full of ups and downs and learning. So that process took me a while. And it was at that point that I finally like really started solidifying that this was what I wanted to focus on and wanted to help women through because it doesn't have to take two years, right? Mm -hmm. I went through the gauntlet and I came out with this strategy and this structure that I use now with my clients that really creates lasting change and doesn't have to take two years and it doesn't have to be lonely and and as difficult as as I went through. So that's where that real desire came from. And that was about four years ago. And every year it's deepening. And my my real deep purpose, I'm clearer and clearer on this every year, is really helping women uncover the real root causes, the reasons behind the physical addiction that are actually why we're we're quote unquote needing food to to numb out and to escape and to, you know, to uh, perpetuate, you know, to get something. So these this inner healing and the inner work is really my my jam. And that's nice. that's what I really support my clients with now. Cool. And one thing, my gosh, you're going to be preaching to the choir here. One thing I I love that you already said is this idea that you were helping people before you were perfect, right? I think a lot of our practitioners, because the nature of our company, Functional Diagnostic Nutrition, is that generally speaking, people have been through the ringer with health by the time they get to something like this. And so naturally, it isn't going, even if you do everything right, it's not going to take three months, six months to get perfectly to where you want to be. I would say I'm still reaping the benefits of the things that I've learned five and a half years later where I'm getting physically stronger, I'm getting more athletic, and that's wonderful. I feel like I'm reverse aging sometimes, but that's the point. It can take a while to really see all these things and to suggest that I wouldn't have been able to help other people during these last five and a half years or during those two and a half years when you're on your journey still, that that's ridiculous. Clearly, you know more than someone out there. And that is really the only thing that you need to be qualified to help someone else is do you know enough about them? Or sorry, do you know enough more than them to be able to support them in some way? That's all it is, right? We don't have to pretend to be perfect. That would be lying. But you could tell them where you're at, tell them where you or how you could help them. And I think that just makes a lot of sense. So one of the things I want to talk about is exactly like how we do help them in your case. And I love that you mentioned already this kind of deeper side to this, yeah. because this is conceptually similar to what one might support someone with if we're talking about a drug withdrawal thing. And I keep bringing this up because I think it's something many people can relate to. If it's not in themselves, they've had it in their family, probably someone they know of has dealt with this. And so typically, not always, but typically when you break down the stories of drug addiction or even substance abuse, 
very rarely is that the core problem. It is a piss poor solution to the core problem. There are those freak cases I've heard, maybe one out of a hundred, if I'm being honest, where someone was like, no, I was actually totally happy. I started doing the things that my friends were doing. I couldn't believe how good it made me feel. And I just kept doing it. All right. Some brains are wired like that. I get it. But more often than not, the person did not feel good to begin with. They started doing the other things that the people around them were doing. And it was a very quick, easy and cheap sense of relief. And it does work for a little bit until it doesn't. So I feel like this is very conceptually uh, conceptually similar to the sugar thing. So if I'm your client and I start working with you, what is the process? And I guess an even better question before that is who is the ideal person that you work with? Because I already have this kind of picture in my head, but I'd love to hear it more explicitly from you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I have so many things I want to say to this, but uh, yeah, <laughs> ideally, you know, I work with women who are usually anywhere between 35 and actually 65. I, I actually know I have a client right now in one of my programs who's 70, which is nice. so inspiring. It's so amazing um, to see women at, at any age doing this. So I do right now work exclusively with women um, and create groups for women and safe spaces for us to to actually talk about our pain and heal in a really collective environment. And you know, this this you know, this journey that I've understood, and I I, I want to come back to what you said, because I think this is so important. Um, and one of the things that I really follow, and maybe you're familiar with the work of Gabor Mate. I'm not. I'm not you're sure. not. Okay. So you definitely need to go look him up. He is a prominent addiction specialist who's worked here with drug and drug and addiction um, okay. in the downtown east side of Vancouver for decades. Um, he's quite well known and his he's been studying addiction essentially his whole life. And his um, his angle, which I agree with and what I've seen, it totally parallels with our relationship with food and our addictions to food, is this understanding that trauma is actually, or addiction is actually rooted in trauma. And the the traumas environmentally and experientially that happen to us as children, whether it's lack of love in a household or, you know, a bigger event, actually shape the way that we feel and see ourselves and obviously shape the way that we think about the world around us, right? So we get this, this energetic imprint uh, as children that causes us to, for most of us, to feel very disconnected from our true selves and very disconnected from, um, you know, our, our truth. We're taught to live in a box. We're taught to conform to society. We're taught to how to essentially not trust our bodies anymore. You know, the world that we, that we live in is, is very, uh, very jarring for a human being whose basic needs are to be free and to be heard and to be seen and to be loved. And most, the truth is most of us, haven't gotten those. So we have some wounding, we have some patterning, um, and we can even get into ancestral traumas and ancestral wounding that is passed down that is now creating this environment within us where we don't know who we are, we, we don't know how to actually be with and experience our emotions. We're, we're, this is a big area that I work with my clients because most of us have been closed off. Feeling is not okay. Feeling and expressing emotions, especially as women, right? It means you're weak, um, oh, as men as well, right? Like mm -hmm. don't cry, you can't cry. Um, it's not safe. And that is really the generation that most of us were raised in is this environment of, you know, be, be heard or be seen and not heard. Right. So there's this real, um, real energetic blueprint of not feeling safe in our bodies and not feeling safe to feel. And when we don't know how to handle our pain or express our pain or our anger in a safe way and know that it's okay to have those emotions and have those expressions of grief and sadness and anger and depression and anxiety and all of these, what we would call negative emotions, which is a term I don't use. Um, 
we we feel this discomfort come in our body as human beings and we just want to escape right there's this need to escape i cannot handle this pain that i'm feeling enter the alcohol enter the sugar enter the heroin enter the drug that I do not have the tools and it is not safe in my body. Therefore, I need a dopamine hit, right? I need to escape and get out of it. So this is a very like very survival mechanism. And I really encourage anyone to, to go and look at Gabor Mate's work. It's really um, it's really helped me draw a lot of lines between like my own patterning as a child and how I wasn't uh, emotionally supported and how I used that then. I used food to give me a sense of love and to give me a sense of uh, feeling whole and just to escape this inner turmoil that I was dealing with because I didn't have any other tools. This isn't something we learn in our society, right? So here we have a society that is just riddled with addiction problems, uh, mental health problems. You know, this is even bigger than just talking about sugar. This is a huge issue when we're not actually supporting those who have lived through traumatic events or have... I mean, we, we all have trauma. I'm going to say that. We, we all have trauma, whether it's little T or big T. We all have these imprints. We all have this trauma. And whether or not we're willing to actually look at that and see how that created those neuropathways and those patterns in our brain that are telling us every time we feel uncomfortable to reach for food, right? To reach for sugar or to reach for a drink or to reach for, you know, cocaine, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you know, these these patterns are very deeply rooted. And if we ever want to actually feel free from the addictions, especially to sugar, Right, I can only speak to that personally. Uh, we we have to be willing to ask those questions about why that exists. Why does that dependency actually exist beyond the physical addiction? Yeah, is there any common themes that you? I mean, I obviously understand the concept of trauma. It's something that's been brought up on the podcast many times, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's any specific themes that you're seeing commonly come up in the women that you're working yeah. with. And I know trauma can come in many forms, but I'm wondering if there's something that, yeah, more often than not it's like this type of relationship was missing or this event kind of happened, or is it just across the board? I mean, I could be wrong with this. It's just a genuine question. Yeah, no, I love this question. Um, and there's definitely some commonalities and we all have unique brands of this, right? But some mm -hmm. of the most common things that I've seen um, are, I mean, for most humans, is this not actually getting our needs for unconditional love met. So this, maybe our parents are too busy or, you know, whenever we're reaching for their, you know, um, support, they're, they're, they just push us aside because they've got to do all the things, right? We get caught up in the whirlwind of life. So there's kind of this being pushed away. And there's a lot of ways that that can kind of show up and just a child not feeling um, accepted for who they are, right? Mm -hmm. And and parents maybe trying to control or change or telling a kid, don't do that, do this, right? Like, you know, this whole kind of shaping of, well, Maybe it's not okay to be who I am, right? Or and 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 I'm I'm not lovable. So a lot of my clients are still carrying this core wound of I'm not lovable or I'm not worthy of love. Um, so this is a huge one. Another one is around that emotional piece that I kind of alluded to earlier. And this is one of my one of my unique brands is, you know, my mom was not emotionally available. So I never fully felt safe and connected to her because she had a lot of protectors and walls up and still actually does to this day. <laughs> Maybe she's listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, she knows this. We've talked about it. But, you know, this this energetic wall up as an as a young child to me meant I am not connected to this person who's supposed to keep me alive. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I'm safe. Therefore, I'm not safe. So as an infant and a child, like these energetic imprints of this human needs to keep me safe. I need that attachment needs to be there. And emotionally, I didn't have that. And a lot of people, um, you know, especially women are walking around with this. And the emotional piece of 
not feeling safe. Like it was not okay to express emotions in your home growing up. Mm -hmm. This is a big one. It's not okay. It's not welcomed, right? And if you were ever angry or you misbehaved, you were told to go and deal with it on your own, which in itself is an act of trauma. When a child is in an, a, a, having a difficult moment, right, whether they're having a temper tantrum or they're angry or they're crying, that is the moment that they need love. They need support. But our culture tells us to, to, to punish that child for having an emotional expression. So we start to learn that that's not okay and it's not safe. And now we, now we do anything we can to stuff our emotions, right, or to stuff these difficult things because it's not safe in our body and we don't know how to deal with it. So these are like just a, a couple of the common ones. Sure. And, you know, a lot of women I do work with as well have had some sort of sexual abuse or sexual trauma right. as well, right? Which is huge. And that's that's the next level trauma when we need to reconnect to our body and and um, release some of that. Got it. This is, um, I, was, I wasn't necessarily thinking about asking this before, but I could just tell you're obviously well-versed with the, the trauma side. And when I asked this question, I was thinking about this prior to you bringing up the sexual assault type of thing. So with that dismissed. And I'm just focusing on the other things that we talked about. I'm someone who's had to recognize certain things that happened in my past. So I'm not dismissing trauma, that's for sure. But I, I kind of wonder, like the more and more I listen to the the long, never-ending list of things that could traumatize someone, I kind of start to wonder, at what point do we draw a line between trauma and life? <laughs> because this 3D reality that we are subject to at this moment in this body it's tough, man. I mean, I could be as happy as could be and could be driving down the highway tonight when my girlfriend and I have to go to this hotel and we can get into a car accident. I'm not being pessimistic. I'm just saying clearly this reality is intense, regardless of how you think we got here or where you think we're going. It is intense. And so where, if I'm a listener, because I've heard people say this, I'm more actually regurgitating a question I commonly hear because I don't have an answer for it necessarily. I hear a lot of people say sometimes, and I think they are dismissing their own trauma, but that's my opinion. Yeah. They will bring up this idea of like, at what point is this just life? And we have to work through those things. So how do you define that? What is the difference between actual trauma versus, hey, life's just tough? Or do those intermingle and there's a way yeah. to deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. I so love this question. This is, this is so great. Um, and yeah, I almost, I'm almost getting this feeling like, you know, um, they, they are intermingled, right? Like life, life is hard. We live in a very complicated time and we've all grown up with, with, um, with difficult things happening around us and to us and for us. And I think the difference, the difference is how we, how we support ourselves with those, right? So I love this definition. This is something that Gabor talks a lot about is like the, the trauma isn't the actual thing that happens, right? Maybe your car accident or, you know, the, even the abuse it's being alone in the pain. That's the actual trauma. So when we don't have support, like deep support to navigate through life when it's difficult, mm -hmm. right? And when things happen and, and, you know, we're getting yelled at at the store around the holidays. I know some people have been talking about that lately, yeah. you know, like these things that can really impact us. Um, you know, if we don't have a safe space to actually unpack it or talk about it or cry about it, right, or to actually release the energy that has been put on us in those moments, that's where we get into actually like, you know, holding on to these traumatic events, right? Okay. So for example, yeah, I'm, I'm experiencing trauma like all the time and I'm very aware of it. 
not not necessarily all the time, but and even the last couple of years that we've all been through a mass trauma together. And I'm very aware of this. I'm like, okay, this is a trauma. Um, I lost my cat a few months ago, which to me was like losing a child. And I'm very sure. aware that that was a huge trauma for me. And I'm very aware, you know, I can kind of come at it from understanding that this was a traumatic event or this had a really big wounding effect on me and a very deep, deep wound. And supporting myself through that is about you know, really honoring the emotions. I've done a lot of crying. I've done a lot of yelling. I've done a lot of grieving, you know, in, in this example specifically. And I've gotten a lot of support with people who are a safe space for me to unpack this and help me go into my body and somatically clear out the energy of that trauma. So sure. I think, you know, yes, life, life is traumatic. I'm going to say that life is difficult. Life is traumatic. I think they go hand in hand and we all take events differently, right? Like somebody yelling at you in the grocery store may be traumatic because of your past, right? And your old, uh, your pathways and and your uh, your challenges, but somebody might yell at me and I don't take it on energetically at all. And it's not a trauma for me. So, you know, I think, I think like, yes, trauma is such a, like a hot word right now. And, and it's, it's complicated and nuanced and there's no black and white answers. And we all have a different way of that showing up in our bodies, right? So okay. it's, it, I think it's, it's dependent on the person, right? Is this a hard life situation or is this actually like a really big, you know, is this, is this actually a traumatic piece that's wounding me that I need to get support with? Nice. I'm glad I asked that because I like, I liked your answer. I had a good yeah. feeling that this was something that you've thought about before and had something intelligent yeah. <laughs> to say with it. So I, I really appreciate that. And I'm already connecting um, two different things. So like, one is just sheer perspective on the event or events that occurred. I do um, speaking in schools. That's what I do for the mental health stuff now. And every now and then, I, I've actually found it's more teacher related than anything else because some people will say demographics. Some people will say the poverty level. And those things do matter. But honestly, it's how the teachers handle the kids that is the biggest indicator of the kids paying attention or not. And I went into a school. The teachers are completely out of control. They're not listening. The kids aren't listening to the teachers when they're telling them to be quiet, let alone the guest speaker. And I remember telling this to my girlfriend and she was very sympathetic, but she was like, oh my gosh, it's got to be so tough. You got to be so upset because I'm trying to ideally pour out a heart-wrenching story of mental health stuff and you have kids screwing around but my perspective on it and this is genuine i never take offense to that because i was the kid like screwing around i just have such a vivid memory of i didn't know it was this at the time but my brain not being developed enough to have the empathy for another human being sharing something serious in front of me i take zero offense it affects me in no way emotionally yeah. when the kids screwing around in the back. I'm like, damn it. Like I, I get that. I was that kind of kid. And I'm actually glad that they don't understand this because that means they don't relate to this. Otherwise they'd be shutting up just like the kid in the front that I can tell is getting this a little too well. So that's one thing is the perspective on it. And then two, I like what you said about almost anything can be a trauma, not because someone's being dramatic, nothing like that, but because of the support uh, systems or tools that they have in place or lack thereof. I'm thinking of a good friend of mine. She lost a five-year boyfriend, very serious, clearly going to get married one day type of thing. And she lost him to a car accident, mm -hmm. like just like a year and a half ago. And as a good friend of mine as well, it was a wild thing to even hear. Like you, it's one of those things you can't believe, right? You're like, wow, that just happened. And I am not saying this to not take an emotional toll on this person, but you know, she comes from a nice little Christian family. They're they're very deep in their faith and they'd always had a pretty good life. So to see something like this happen, that is the true test of faith, regardless of what anyone's faithful to. Yeah. I'm like, wow, you people actually believe this. Like they, the way that she handled that situation, I know me and I like to believe that I, I've 
built a lot of tools and I have a good support network now. And I know for me, something like that, I don't mean to be dramatic, but I'm just saying that is the one thing that could get me back to a place where I am contemplating like taking my own life type of thing. And the strength that this woman exhibited to deal with such a situation like that was unbelievable. But I'm thinking about it. She has her faith. She has wonderful friends. She has a wonderful family. She can be open about these things. And I'm realizing, yes, it's not that it's not traumatic. I'm sure that this has an effect. But yeah, how that's dealt with versus someone that maybe has a similar experience, but they don't talk to their family. They have faith in nothing. Yeah, yeah they got a couple friends, but you know they didn't really know how to handle such a trauma. So they, they do love them, but they don't really talk to her because you know how it can be weird when someone's grieving. You don't really know how to handle it. You don't want to upset them any worse. And now they're completely isolated. And that situation becomes something that does lead to maybe a, a suicide attempt versus someone who, yes, they got affected greatly, but they are going to push through this. And I have faith in my heart that she's going to somehow use this to help other people in some way. So it's kind of amazing how that can happen. And I'm sorry to go off on such a long thing, but you really made me think when you brought up that idea of you know, what do they have already in place to deal with the traumas that are occurring? Because that's a severe situation and she handled it as about as my God, that's about as good as anyone can handle it that I know of. So yeah, yeah. Can I add to that? Because it yes. was really yeah, coming up please. for me there, right? And this, this is this is actually very, like, very personally, what I'm still healing through is this deep energetic imprint of being alone. Like at some point, this is another one of the the pieces that we all at some point in our life might be experiencing, right? Especially in childhood. Maybe if your parents didn't have time for you or you didn't really have that attachment to your caregivers that were keeping you alive, right? There's this very big wounding of being alone. And this has been really amplified the last few years for a lot of us and really being ostracized and not feeling alone. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, right? Where you're like surrounded by people, but you still feel alone, uh-huh. right? Yes. So there's <laughs> yeah. a difference. There's a huge spectrum of connection, like what is real connection and support versus superficial, um, everyday kind of like connecting with your colleagues. Right. Um, and those are the relationships that I used to have friendships that were very surface level, very, you know, and, and I didn't really fully feel seen. So this is what I'm saying. And this is this big piece, um, in this conversation is understanding that we need to have people in our life that really see us and unconditionally Mm -hmm. love us for who we are so that we can feel safe. Right. This we we need a safe space to like your your friend has going through this really horrible event. You know, obviously beautiful having her faith, which is very supportive, and this group of people that she feels like she can talk to or she can cry to or not feel judged. Right. Like I am having a hard day today. Right. And the tears are pouring and and you know, really feeling held and maybe hopefully hugged a lot in that Mm -hmm. situation. Right. So these are the types of like support networks that we're most people are missing and this is where when we start feeling that deep sense of loneliness this mm-hmm. is where it's that quick slippery slope right into addictive behavior yeah. into contemplating suicide into right when we feel so disconnected from society and those around us um, that is when those things start to really really come into play this is interesting because it's a odd example but I, if people listen to the whole thing, they'll get what I'm saying here. My family on my dad's side is very large. A lot of people, a lot of little cousins, aunts, uncles, everyone's hanging out. And when uh, we had an aunt pass away uh, just a couple of years ago now from brain cancer, she passed away. And of course, it's a sad thing. I'm not saying that. But I couldn't believe what would happen when we got together for these memorials or the funerals or whatever. It was like... I, I'm always the weird one, right? Like looking at this from the outside type of thing. And I'm 
I'm like, I'm amazed how well everyone's handling it because it's not that they don't care. Everyone loves this person, but the ability for them to deal with this type of thing, the core thing seemed here like, yes, everyone's having a few drinks. They're eating some crappy food. I'm like, that's not what's leading to this though right now. What's leading to this is the family unit and and the cousins and all these things. And so do you find that that loneliness is a core component in the people that you're working with? Because I felt like there is something that the tribal thing does that prevents us from dealing with devastating effects of loss. It, it seemed to me at least, because I had never seen anything like that. And I thought that was interesting. So is loneliness yeah. a key component in a lot of your clients? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I have to add to that because I would be very curious. There is a lot of families. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, right? When we have the right type of open um, connected support network, you know, in a tribe situation, in a family, and we're all going through a loss together. That's a really, really impart- important part of the grieving process. And what I see more than not is these family units coming together. And I would be curious in your situation, only you know this, obviously, that the the patterning in that family is to ignore emotions, right? Is to just suck it up, pretend everything's okay, put on a brave face, um, you know, try to be positive, And is there avoidance of actually feeling the pain that exists, right? There's a fine line (laughs) between like, hey, we're all just going to pretend it's okay and have some drinks and celebrate, you know, auntie versus actually being together and being sad together and allowing that, right? And supporting each other in in the hurt that is going to come up, right? So there's like a fine line between the avoidance and the acceptance of, of that, if that makes sense. Well, you, my friend, are an expert in your craft. And I think that proves it because there's nothing – like I'm trying to think about this from an outsider's perspective. If you know nothing about this topic, there is nothing that I said to indicate that what you just suggested is correct. And yet you are correct because that side of the family has historically been one that even though they are close and everyone clearly loves each other, one of the things that um, my dad had always talked about is they don't say – I love you. Even with my grandmother, who is a sweet little old lady. This isn't like some like tough grandmother. This is a sweet old lady who doesn't even like really like driving by herself because she's afraid of driving. So it's someone that you naturally want to have that connection with and just kind of take care of her. It's like splitting hairs to get her to say this first. And so that is an astute observation or not even an observation because you don't know that yet necessarily, but an astute question, a Mm -hmm. suggestion, right? Like, hey, is this actually going on? Because yes, that family, as close as they are, as much as they do care, there has been historically those problems of, you know, oh, we can all hang out and everyone can drink together. But the I love you, that is like, it's like pulling teeth with some of those people there. So very interesting that you just Yeah. And this is, you know, uh, not to make you feel any less special, but I said that because (laughs) this is most family units. This is literally how most people and Every one of my clients have been raised in this type of family and myself as well. You know, even in, in my journey, I really do, um, even to this day, you know, I'm thinking about my in-laws who I've, you know, I've been in their life 14 years and, and my family, um, oftentimes like I, I deeply feel like they don't really know who I am. They don't really know the true Danny, the deep spiritual, like this deeper part of me. And I'm okay with that because I have other people in my life who do know that part of me and are op- like can actually understand and comprehend me in that space and in my true essence in that way. So as close as I am with my family, um, it's okay that they don't necessarily know me at the depths. But I think that's really common. It's like, you know, we can feel close to our family, but 
Um, I think there's there's a very different level of closeness that comes through vulnerability and pain. And a lot of families are in this, let, let's just always have fun together mode, right? And that doesn't necessarily create that depth of of closeness and connection without the deep vulnerability and being seen in your worst places, right? Being seen in your your ugliest spaces, you're you're angry, you're sad, you're, you know, all of the myriad of emotions and being able to actually hold each other in that space is is really sort of that next level of of connection. So it's it's really common. Yeah, sure. All right. I still think that there's probably something to this idea of like, yes, human connection makes these things more easy to deal with, but that's very interesting what you're saying. And it's changing my perspective. Um, because yeah, there's a difference between helping each other versus hiding with each other. Yeah. Um, I'll give give a simple example of this just recently for me in the passing of my, my little, um, my kitty, um, (laughs) You know, I I reached out for support because now this is a skill that I'm learning and I know that I'm not going to go through this alone, even though it feels really painful and I kind of want to hide and not tell anybody, right? This was something that I was very aware of. This is me repatterning how I actually get the support that I need to not go through this alone. And, um, you know, I, I reached out to my mom and I didn't, I didn't feel the support that I needed. I didn't feel the support that I needed in in various ways, because I know that she didn't just have the capacity emotionally to be with me in my pain, because she still has her emotional walls up versus, you know, my other friend who came right over and is crying with me, right? She is crying with the loss with me and we're holding each other and we're just ugly crying together, right? So that like is a, is a small nuance of like, uh, can we be in this together, right? And that's where I think that collective community, obviously, when you really feel in pain together and you know that the other person is 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 feeling it maybe at a different level than you but still feeling it with you um that to me feels like that that really really wonderful level of like I'm not alone in this right and I'm I'm deeply supported here totally makes sense i think this is simple then for me at this point yeah. so the family dynamic that i was talking about on my dad's side would be you know kind of this distracting version yeah. whereas that i won't name her but that friend that i was talking about who lost her probably soon to be fiance at the time that is real. Yeah. Ugly cry. Like yeah. we are dealing with this together. Yeah. And I, I guess the bittersweet side was that the person that she was with was so close to so many of her friends and her family, like lived at the house, like four or five days out of the yeah. week. It it's impossible not to go through it together to some degree. So um, very interesting kind of yeah. noticing those those differences now. Um, obviously, we're almost at 50 minutes, but I, I want to steal a few more minutes of your time, if I may, just to make sure yeah. we cover everything in your business, of course. I, I want to start with this. Let's begin with where can people find you? Because we touched on a lot today, and, it, and it's interesting. I didn't necessarily expect it to take this route when we first started. You know, I'm thinking about the nuances of sugar, and we ended up talking about this, but clearly this is one of the major, if not the major, underlying theme with people who are addicted to sugar. So where can people find you if they're like, damn, I love this person. I, I want to work with them. They really get this for me. So where can they find you and what do you offer specifically? Yeah, yeah I love that. And uh, before I answer that, I have to comment on yeah. what you just said, because I think that is, that's often what my clients come and say to me, like, oh, I came, I came to you know, talk about food and sugar. And why are we talking about all, the, all this other stuff? Like what's going on? Um, and the quote and the, the, the thing that I always say is really just understanding that our relationship with food is a direct e- example or a relation of our relationship with ourselves. It's just a mirror of our relationship with ourselves. So we, we can 
try to, you know, abstain from sugar and do a 30 day detox and do all these, try to make all these habits and changes in our life on the surface level. But if we don't get to the foundation and actually get into what is going on with our relationship with ourselves and our beliefs, nothing's actually going to change in the long run. You're not going to make any lasting change. You're going to be on this roller coaster with sugar, with food, with guilt and shame your whole life. So this is, yeah, this is absolutely, you know, what I do and why it's so unique, especially in the sugar addiction space, you know, is really getting curious about the deep inner wounds and healing from the inside out so that we can essentially like repair our foundation, right? And be strong and connected and grounded and love ourselves and, and be confident in ourselves and speak our truth and set healthy boundaries and all of these really empowering things that ultimately affect how we want to naturally nourish ourselves, right? With, with healthy right. foods. So yeah, I would love to love to connect with any of your audience members. A really great place to come and start is to come and listen to my podcast. It's called the Beyond Sugar Freedom Podcast. Um, and I had read on recently, which is which was really exciting. And and then you can come and find me on my website, DanielleDame.com. I'm on Instagram and Facebook as well. Same Danielle Dame um, links as well. So those will be the best places to, to connect with me for sure. And in terms of clients, do you do one-on-one, group, mm. both? Yeah. So actually I don't do one-on-one anymore unless it's within the container of my group. So I do host group, uh, group programs. I do a few a year, a couple different, different ones every year. I also have a monthly membership community, um, for my clients after they've done one of my programs. So we on go support each other. And the truth of that, I want to be really honest with this because this was a shift I made last year. And this kind of sounds funny coming from a coach is that I realized that we don't heal one-on-one we heal in community. And a lot of all the women that I work with have been wounded around being in other groups of women, not being heard, not being seen, not feeling safe to share. So creating these really safe spaces to talk about our pain and navigate our deepest wounds and most shameful parts is a really, really important part of our healing journey. And we just can't do that one-on-one. So that's something that I really started taking away from my practice because I feel like it's doing a disservice to my clients. And, um, in that group setting is actually where the healing happens. So that's, that's my passion now is, is really seeing that and supporting in that way. I I would back that up. I've either been involved in the planning of, or even directly hosted retreats of several different types, all focused around health and healing to some degree. It's just a little different. And I was, first of all, I was amazed by how you feel during those things because it instantly makes you realize that all the stuff, the technology, the fast foods, all BS. All we ever needed was other good human beings who have our best interests and they're actually decent and care about us. And most of them are that really at the core. Um, when I realized that, I was like, wow, like this is how these things can happen quick. So I definitely agree with you with that. My final question for you, signature one on the uh, podcast is, and this is interesting because you have a lot of different um, things that you've done and yeah. approaches that you take. If we could give you a magic wand and you could get every single person in this world to do one thing for their health, whether that's actually get them to do one thing or alternatively, you could get them to stop doing one thing. What is the one thing Danny would get them to do? Ooh, okay. The first, trusting my intuition here, the first thing that came to me is getting them to spend time every day just connecting with themselves. So taking a minute, you know, to just be with yourself and and learn to look inward and just connect with that beautiful human that that has been hiding in there. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation. You asked some really, really great questions that I really appreciate. 
All right, guys, that'll do it for today's episode with Danielle Dame. I hope that you guys did enjoy this one and you understood what I meant in the beginning when I said this is kind of a unique episode. This really isn't like the ones that you might expect when we're talking about sugar or trauma. I just, it's not even the people's fault necessarily. I just think they're so overdone that it's tough to hear unique content or something that really engages you when you might have heard it before. And I don't know if I'm just being too personal because maybe there were certain things that she said that I found relatable, but I thought she nailed this one today. And if you guys liked it, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Spotify and or Apple. Even more importantly though, reach out to her, tell her that you liked the episode. We would appreciate that. And I think she, she deserves it. With that said, I will be back soon, very soon, <laughs> with another episode that will be a continuation of our 200th episode special. I'm excited to bring that one to you guys. Just a heads up, if you are still listening to the podcast right now, of course, we will be taking a little bit of a break for the holidays. We are United States-based, and Christmas is a major holiday in the United States, so we will be taking the day off from posting after that, December 26th, and New Year's Day. We will not be posting either, but we are still here with you, ready to bring some great new content in 2023. Thank you guys so much, and we will talk again soon.